0: Welcome to Week Question and Learn. This is Tom Pies. We're celebrating our 19th year on the air here at WQLN FM 91.3, WQLN NPR 1. And uh, almost as long as this program has been on the air, historically, my guest today, his, his story goes back about 19 years. Dr. Jerry Clark, am I right?
1: Yes. It'll be 20 years in August, which is so hard to believe.
0: It's. it's uh, I, I was thinking it was only a decade ago, how time flies, right?
1: Yes, exactly, uh, it sure has.
0: Well, let's explain to the audience. First of all, Dr. Clark is uh, uh, at Gannon University, and your title there, if I could ask?
1: Associate professor, criminal justice, and um, I've been here since I retired from the FBI.
0: And how long ago was that?
1: Yeah, 2011. It's so hard to believe uh, that I'll be here at Gannon. Uh, all those years now already, too. Those have flown, but I uh, really enjoy what I do here, so uh, it'll be hard for them to to have me to leave here, that's for sure.
0: Well, let's um, go right to your publications. That's probably sure. an easy way to uh, step up the conversation. The Pizza Bomber, that's the title of the book. The Untold Story of America's Most Shocking Bank Robbery. You know, I just heard a reference to it on a national network the other day, which provoked me to call you, and that's published by uh, Penguin Random House. And uh, my gosh, uh, did they ever make a movie out of that yet? Forgive me for not knowing.
1: No, they have not. Uh, There were some shows that have been copied, sort of the storyline. Yes. But uh, we currently have the book optioned uh, to be heading down that way for a, a scripted limited series. So we're very excited about that.
0: Well, this is a sad part of Erie history, but an important part. These types of cases, and I'm going to depend on your expertise, they're not that common. This became a nationally known event. Am I right?
1: Tom, this thing uh, just went places that I would have never imagined, um, national, international. Uh, It's very popular overseas just because of really two things, I think, that captured uh, the imagination and fascination of people. Number one, uh, it really never happened before that an individual walked into a bank wearing a live device Mm. that detonates during the course of the robbery resulting in their death. And that had never happened. And then the second thing, and I think even more than that, the first thing is the fact that it was captured on film. Mm. And so it's been able to be seen on the internet all over the world and, and uh, in various versions. And, and I think the, the combination of those just took it to places that I would have never imagined
0: uh, on that day. So let's talk about the story. We're going to go back to August 28th, 2003. And the main player here is a fellow by the name of Brian
1: Wells? Yes, that's correct. Uh, uh, on that day, Mr. Wells entered... Uh, the PNC Bank here in Erie uh, and approached the teller counter, handed a note saying this is a robbery and I need $250,000 and I have a bomb. And so that's how the whole thing uh, triggered from that moment
0: on. That's too scary. What typically, I guess maybe some things are confidential, but that had to have been a most stressful moment for all the employees. And I'm sure there's a procedure and things. So he goes in and does this. He makes the threat. What happens subsequent?
1: So subsequent, what also made this robbery a little different than some of the others that I've worked um, over the years was that there were customers in the bank mm. that actually started calling 911 while the bank was even being robbed. And so they were providing almost like a play-by-play mm. as, hey, he's walking out the door, he's entering his car, he's driving out of the lot. And so therefore, The Pennsylvania State Police, who did an amazing response to the robbery, were immediately able to you know, spot him and and do a felony car stop and place him under arrest uh, just a few hundred yards from where the bank was, and then that's wow. when I arrive on scene. So it was a very quick response, and and again, that's credit to the to the customers in the bank.
0: Let's just jump forward for a second to today. You're a professor, but you're an author, and not yeah. only are you the author of the book The Pizza Bomber: The Untold Story of America's Most shom- uh, Shocking A Bank Robbery, but you have several other books that uh, you've written uh, with a partner. Am I right? right?
1: Sure, that's absolutely correct, Tom, and I've been very fortunate uh, that after we wrote the first book, and by we, I mean uh, Ed Palatella and myself, and Ed is a really renowned writer for the Erie Times News, investigative reporter, he's been there forever, and uh, together we worked on the Pizza Bomber book. Well, after that book came such a success, uh, we actually had a publisher come to us asking for a three-book series Uh, on other cases that I had done or other uh, things that we could write on. So it was sort of uh, a neat process for us because we were able to then write Mania uh, and Marjorie Deal Armstrong inside the mind of a female serial killer because Marjorie was such a unique character. So she became our second book. So the first book is really about the investigation of the pizza bomber case. The second book is more about Marjorie Deal Armstrong specifically and the uniqueness that she had as being classified as a female serial killer And then they asked for uh, a book on bank robberies in general because they seem to fascinate public uh, just the fact that someone could walk into a bank and rob it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we wrote A History of Heists, and that was uh, a really, really also popular book, Bank Robbery in America. And we start from the very first bank robbery in Philadelphia all the way to some of the modern ones and how uh, bank robberies have changed over the years. And then our last book is called On the Lamb, and it's a history of running fugitives in America, because I was, uh, while I was with the FBI, I spent six years on a violent crime fugitive task force, where all I did every day was work violent crime. So kidnapping, Mm. bank robberies, fugitives, and the fascination, again, with the public for people who are on the run. And it, it really has been a, another one of those uh, successful projects oh that we God. were able
0: to get. Memories of Bonnie and Clyde to some degree, that kind of excitement, um, would you say?
1: Oh, it's it's... It's truly, the you know, the fact that people get out there on the run and, and uh, the public's view of what's going on and their ability to stay away. And, you know, from the movie The Fugitive that we mentioned yes, in the book yes. with Harrison Ford and, you know, how he's trying to get away from Tommy Lee Jones. And you almost start rooting for the fugitive to, you know, they especially ones that, you know, you feel were, you know, innocently charged for some reason. But usually that's not the case. Usually it's the fact that they had done wrong and, and now we're looking for so, uh, the things that people do to not be captured, uh, have really just blown me away in mm-hmm. my career and doing that long enough, I got to see a lot of that.
0: Well, you mentioned the most recent movie. I confess, I remember the television programs. So.
1: <laughs> ah, uh,
2: there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's Going right.
0: way back. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about you for a second, your career. Uh, you were uh, a college student and I'm thinking, where yeah. did you go to school? I'm looking here. I can't find it.
1: Yeah. So, um, I'm from Erie originally, which is great. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I just love Erie and always have. And so while I went away to school, in, you know, I was in New York City mm. at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, mm-hmm. um, which was really uh, one of the top level criminal justice schools in the country at the time. Yes. It still is, but... They had a master's degree in forensic psychology, and that was so rare at the time because it was such a new burgeoning field. And so I was able to go there and and receive a master's degree uh, in in forensic psychology. And I, I just love the fascinating view of, you know, not what people do, but why they do it. So that always sort of came into my play as far as psychology of human behavior and criminal behavior. So, um,
0: And you were so a bit there, ahead of your time, come to think of it.
1: You know, at the time you start thinking in 1983, Yes. you know, there just wasn't anybody really looking at that mm-hmm. to find that program. And then to be accepted into it, I was just so proud and happy and fortunate so I, I was able to get that degree and then that opened a lot of doors so federally i started applying uh to every federal agency i could mm. and ncis was the first one that called
0: here we go again right you're out and of your there time I go. again so
1: yes. now we're moving to philadelphia and uh you know i worked as a special agent with ncis down in philadelphia doing all sorts of different protective service details and was overseas guarding people that Uh, We had threats on from different countries, and so I I really enjoyed that time. And then uh, about, I don't know, maybe a year and a half into that, I get a call from DEA, which is the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, Drug Enforcement Administration, that's more along the lines of where I'm heading, which was my ultimate goal of the FBI. But uh, I then took a job with DEA and went back to the academy again uh, down in Quantico and uh, was assigned to the Cleveland office of the FBI, Cleveland, Ohio. So I love six years of fighting some of the highest level drug traffickers in Cleveland, Ohio. And again, that job took me everywhere, again, overseas, uh, because that's where you know our sources of supply are. And then finally, after six years into that, uh, the FBI finally gave me the call and said, You know, hey, we're ready. So Mm -hmm. uh, back down to the academy again, for my third uh, (laughs) federal law enforcement training center. I never would recommend that to anybody. Um, And then uh, I was assigned the Cincinnati Division of the FBI in the Dayton RA. And then I spent six years there, like I said, on a fugitive violent crime task force. Hunting some of the uh, you know most notorious uh, uh, violent felons in in the in the area and around the country, so I got lucky enough then. In the FBI, if you get fortunate to get transferred to your OP, it's called an office of preference, Mm -hmm. you can go to a place that you are looking for if they have a need. And I got back to the Pittsburgh division Mm -hmm. uh, in the Erie RA and I thought, oh, my God, I just hit the lottery. You know, I got (laughs) back home and I'm in Erie Mm -hmm. and then uh, was here only about a a half a year uh, or no, I guess it was a year and a half. And uh, that's when August 28, thousand and three, mm-hmm. hit. So changed my life forever.
0: And uh, with all that, I, I'm surprised the government still isn't seeking you out to do special <laughs> cases. I'm being, I'm fantasizing a television program here. Forgive me, but I, no, I, I'm trying no, to. We, how did you yeah. manage all that excitement? You must be a man of uh, of great patience. Uh, the stress you must know, be overwhelming in my mind, anyway.
1: Our law enforcement officers, Tom, are the Heroes, uh, you know, and I'm 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 talking first responders in general. Yes, you know, with firefighters and and EMTs and our emergency room medical staffs and those the you know police uh, agents, all the people that really run to trouble, and and we never seem to understand that until we need them. And when you need them and you call them, they're they're coming. And and so I have the utmost respect for anybody who's done this job because it is stressful and it is, uh, you know, hard on you physically, mentally, and emotionally. And if you don't have the right support and and ability, uh, for structure outside of the job, it can really wear you down. So for all my fellow first responders out there, you know, I, I just give you a hats off and my absolute, uh, honor and
0: respect. I think we all support that more than 100%. I think sometimes people don't realize how uh, close you are. Uh, boy, that was not a good statement. How dangerous your lifestyle is. It's it's mm. it's beyond writing about, it, I'm sure, because you can describe it, but the daily stress and the things you went through are... Uh, oh, thank you for being there.
1: Well, thank you, and I, I, I appreciate the opportunity just to even talk about it. It's almost cathartic for me to talk about because when I think of how many doors... You know, I've been through you know whether that was on drug cases or or fugitive arrests, and I think our arrest uh, numbers in in Dayton, Ohio, were like 2,000 violent felons in 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 six years, and that's a lot mm-hmm. of people. That I feel like we made a small dent in keeping society safe. And again, it's not about arresting everybody and locking. The, the people and thrown away the key. It's not about that. It's about people who have had opportunity to make change and don't, and they're just, uh, you know, a risk and a danger to our citizens and society. And unfortunately those people exist and, and we need to separate them from us.
0: Well, that's your bat bachelor's of art, uh, psychology, uh, sneaking into the conversation here where you yes. started. Um, but what provoked you? And I think you did mention it to some degree. Why forensic psychology? What, um, what provoked you to be interested in that topic?
1: You know, it, it, I sort of uh, mentioned a little bit about it, but yeah. to get a little deeper into it, it's it's a, all about what uh, makes people tick it, for me. You know, because if you think about this, uh, if, if if somebody wanted to hurt somebody or, or kill somebody, God forbid, you could do 10 different things, you know, uh, certainly shoot and stab and, and drown and poison and suffocate or whatever it is you chose as your method. But my thought process is, why do you want that person dead? Mm -hmm. And so that's where the psychology of the whole thing becomes so fascinating to me because I want to figure out what makes people do what they do. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you don't have a background in that i think you're missing a piece as an investigator that will really help you throughout your career and that's why i teach again in a course called investigative concepts and an intro to forensic psychology and i try to tell students you have to know a little bit about what your suspect is thinking because it'll help you in the interview it'll help you in the interrogation and it'll certainly help you put your case together so i just think it's vitally important to have that
0: blend when you're in this field. I so respect that statement you made. You're really looking for the why, and that could go back yeah. to the person's upbringing, their environment. I'm, I'm not going to teach your course. Talk about that for a minute.
1: Yeah, no, there's so many developmental factors that get involved. There's a lot of biology. So do we bring some sort of gene or trait with us, mm-hmm. like you might for alcoholism or some uh, other thing that you have addiction? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a cognitive issue you know where there's something going on uh mentally is there some social issue Uh, you know so all those little contributing factors i talk about in class making up a stew of of what drives us into criminality and uh it's it's very 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 interesting if you take that course you can see all the different potential reasons now some people who have all those factors never become criminal, and you say, "Well, how does that happen?" Yeah. yeah. That you know, even in twin studies, it's so fascinating yeah. that you can have two twins uh, or a set of twins from mm. a family, and one does something and one doesn't, and you figure, "Boy, they both had almost the exact same situation in development." So uh, it's it's a unique thing. If you ever get the book, uh, it's called "The Criminal Personality," and um. Mm-hmm. It's it's by Yockelson and Sam and, I, and they just say, you know what? If you boil down all the reasons, it might be as simple as, hey, they just get something out of it and they like it, you know. And they 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 boil it down pretty uh, simplistic in some ways, but very very interesting too.
0: You may not be able to say, but does the government come uh, on occasion, i.e., give you a phone call and say, Doctor Clark, Jerry, what's your what's your thoughts on this? Is this something that keeps? Coming back into your life. Beep. You know, I
1: definitely uh, reach out and talk to a lot of my FBI colleagues mm-hmm. who are still active. Mm-hmm. And I, while I cannot, right. you know, know right. some of the inside information anymore, uh, which I would love to do, but yeah. <laughs> they, you know, have their roles. I do uh, offer advice and, and certainly give and provide some insight as to what I think uh, might be helpful. And again, sometimes uh, they find that very helpful. And so it benefits me because I, I love trying to figure out things. You know, the best thing at time I do in, in class, I say, you know what an investigator is? An investigator does an investigation on a case. And it's almost like taking a big jigsaw puzzle mm. and, and like a 10,000 piece puzzle and throwing it out on the table. And what do we do first? I say we always do the edges, right? Because we know they're flat. And then we yes. look at the box and we see what, you know, well, there's red here, there's a river here, you know, there's blue, you know, and, and that's how you put your puzzle together. I said an investigation is like throwing that puzzle out onto the, all those pieces out, having no edges, yeah. having no box to look at and uh having some pieces missing yeah and i said think about the challenges that
0: provide and And, a a terrible timeline sometimes (laughs) to catch up at what you're doing yes that
1: throws another thing in the mix so yeah yeah, it always uh it it makes it very challenging (laughs) when you never know exactly what happens
0: so that's the course you teach at gannon university how long have you been doing that
1: so, I've been here since two thousand eleven um mm-hmm. and like i said i several times uh i I say you know i because I have a business now uh called Fisher Security, an unarmed security guard service, and it grew so much uh-huh. uh in Erie here and in pittsburgh now i am um that I thought of going you know and just doing it full-time but i i instead brought my son michael clark into Mm. the business and he now manages my business because i just don't want to leave Gannon. i just love everything about teaching new students and teaching investigators of the future to go out and become you know just the most solid integrity-based uh you know officer that they can become
0: if you see some guy sitting in the back row that's me i'm (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> auditing the class and I'm sure even one session would be fascinating because you have a different perspective relative to other folks I've talked to about your field um going back to uh the books you have a partner you mentioned his name Ed Palatella yes, yes. how did you two fellas um get together on that wonderful project these great books
1: yeah that's a great question and Ed Palatella uh like I said been at the is still at the Erie Times News and has been there for so long, uh, you know, he's, he's a master's in journalism from Stanford. I mean, this, yeah. this is a very, very bright guy. And yeah, absolutely. Ed would do his job as an investigative reporter. And I was the acting supervisor of the Erie FBI office. And so our paths would cross on different cases, including the pizza bomber, all during the time I was there because he was trying to get information. And I was obviously keeping that information close to my uh, case because we couldn't let that out. But at the same time, utilizing the news to help us in the best ways that they could. And we just developed this respect and and working relationship with each other that I think was uh, one of the really most prideful things I had coming out of there because I felt I could trust that Ed would always do the right thing and always try to help. He still had his interests in what he was trying to do, but he always respected whatever I was trying to do on my end to to keep the integrity of the case. So after I retired, uh, Ed and I got together and said, uh, "You know what a crazy case." And he's saying, "You know, mm-hmm. let me let me just start interviewing you and let me see what we can come up with because I think there's something here that people would love to to hear about." And I did the book for two reasons. One, I think it helps investigators who may have a similar case to mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And number two, I wanted the the true story told. You know because. A lot of times the truth gets mixed up mm-hmm. in multiple versions, and so I just said, if I could do those two things—help investigators and uh, get the truth out there—that I would cooperate, and that's where
0: we start. So, as uh, you and Ed um, have bonded together, that's four books now—one, uh, two, yes, three, yeah, yeah, yes.
1: That—and I got to tell you, if I if I if I could, mm-hmm. all four books right now are off optioned. By different uh, movie production companies. Is that right? All oh, four of wow. them. At one point, it was only the Pizza Bomber, but now, uh, another two companies have come forward and optioned Ice Heist and On the Lamb. Uh, four different series that they're working on. So I'm, I'm cooperating with all
0: four of those right now as as uh, as we speak. I'm being a bit facetious, but be careful. You'll be on the road doing tours. And <laughs> or maybe you <laughs> yeah. have done that already. How has your life changed because of the book?
1: My life changed. Um, and again, the first thing I need to say is, you know, three people lost their lives in that pizza bomber Mm -hmm. case. And so I'll Mm -hmm. never forget the families Mm -hmm. and what they went through Mm -hmm. and uh, all the loss that went with that. Mm -hmm. And so their lives changed far worse than mine, but my life changed in many ways too, because of the rigor and, and stress that went with trying to solve a major case. And it, it took a huge team of people, not just myself, I obviously get all the credit sometimes for it, but there were a lot of people from PSP, from Erie Police Bomb Squad, from Erie Mm -hmm. Police Regular, U.S. Attorney's Office, the District Attorney's Office, uh, the ATF, Jason Wick. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. Uh, Special Agent Jason Wick, my partner, um, you know, uh, and again, all the PSP officers that did such an amazing job with collecting evidence, and so it, it changed everything I do. I speak all over the country mm-hmm. about the case to investigators. I just was in Delaware, I just, I'm, I'm all over, because investigators wanna know, you know, what's the good, what's the bad, what's the ugly of any major case, and there are all of those, believe me. Um, and I try to help investigators if they ever come across anything similar uh, how how I
0: challenged uh, and worked with those those challenges. So not only are you an adjunct professor at Gannon University, you're an on-the-road professor, so to speak. And it just dawned on sure. me, as you said that, that of course your your former workmates would indeed call you on occasion, uh, since you had lived through a most difficult time, and and ask you pertinent questions.
1: Yes, absolutely. No, we uh we in this field, you know, we we try to help each other and. A lot of times that gets lost again, uh, where where you know people don't see that, and maybe that maybe that's uh, the way the, that investigations run. They're so quiet. But uh, a lot of times there is conversation between uh, past, former, you know, current, uh, just trying to help in any way they can to because we're all trying to do the right thing and figure out what happened and put that puzzle that I said that big jigsaw back together. And and again beyond a reasonable doubt is a very high burden to charge somebody with. And it should be. We don't want innocent people in jail. We absolutely don't. Uh, So everything has to be done perfectly so that there's uh, that bar that's satisfied when you do go to do go
0: to court. Sometimes you see a preponderance of these types of scenarios in television programs. I'm not sure. Am I getting good information are the producers of the, besides the thrill and some of the things mm-hmm. that you care not to see on TV. And of course, I'm prejudiced in that area, as you know, but, uh, right. <laughs> but uh, briefly, is this a good portrayal or are they not helping us? Are they helping us or are they tainting your good work?
1: Yeah, I think it, it it sometimes can taint good work, and there's something called the CSI effect. Yes, where now in trial, you know, jurors expect, you know, DNA evidence. They expect oh. the highest level gold standard of evidence, mm-hmm. and it's not always in. You know, you might have circumstantial evidence. You might have other evidence that uh, doesn't reach the DNA level, but it's still significantly strong. Coupled all together, so it does make it difficult for investigators because it, it makes it look like they can do things very quickly. And I mean, look in Idaho, I've been following that case so much. I, I just can't get uh, enough information to know, you know, mm-hmm. to speak to it intelligently. But I got to say, you know, the expectation now is so high. We want this solved, you know, today. And it's, yeah. there's, that's a lot of data and a lot of evidence and a lot of uh, analysts, uh, going through a ton of information to
0: put that together. Not something you can write into a 60 minute, uh, television right. program. You may be talking 10, 20 years, even, uh, you to you may get all the data. Yeah. Yes.
1: Yeah. Those are, those are tough to put together. They are.
0: Um, as you, um, are teaching a successful author, what, what do you see him accomplishing say in the next five or 10 years, or even the next couple of years, what are your plans?
1: You know, I want to continue to watch Fisher Security grow with my son. It's so great to work um, with, with, with my son together. He was a finance major and oh, good, uh, good. was a successful uh, financial planner and left that position to come um, help his, his old decrepit dad. Uh, dear uh, old dad. <laughs> and so, uh, no, I'm just so fortunate to have him. And so I love watching that grow. Mm-hmm. and then again like i said just putting out students that'll come back to me and say hey i just got hired by dea and then i'm down at the border and i i think oh my god i'm living through you now you know um mm-hmm. it's it's almost reversed where i'm i'm teaching these young minds to go out and do good things and now when they come back to tell me what they're doing i just get the biggest thrill out of that so i hope to be doing that for the next several years
0: another book coming maybe
1: we are definitely in conversation about another book and so we're very excited about that so that would be number five and we're hoping very soon to have information regarding uh you know the production of these four that we have into something so i can't announce anything yet but i know there's good things
0: coming dr clark jerry clark what a pleasure speaking with you today it's uh it's been a 20-year reunion (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> sure has, Tom. Oh, where did the it's time go?
0: Quick, quick, twenty years. Yeah, and it sneaks by us. But I hope that maybe we can catch you over the summer of twenty twenty three, and uh, or at least uh, when you're releasing your next book, and talk a little bit more about uh, just America in general. I think that would be fascinating to hear your opinion on uh, why we are where we are. If you wouldn't mind coming back again.
1: I'd have a lot to say about that, Tom, so I'd love to be back.
0: There's our program. Uh, I'm (laughs) glad you uh, committed. We'll figure that out over the summer. You bet. Gerald Clark, Dr. Clark, thank you for your uh, on-air visit here with WQLN, and we question and learn, and we're looking forward to speaking with you again.
1: I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Tom.
0: Welcome to We Questioned and Learned. This is Tom Pies. We're celebrating our 19th year here on the air at WQLN NPR. We're on about a dozen podcast venues to date, and we always strive to have the most interesting guests we can. And I found an old friend who was always good for good conversation and, and now for good education, Jonathan DeSilva, who's the new director of Penn State Law's Intellectual Property Clinic. But uh, Jonathan, welcome, first of all.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me, Thomas. Good good to see you
0: again. Hey, let's go back to um, uh, a few years back. You uh, were working for a major law firm, but you went off on your own a bunch of years ago, and you created a a firm. What's the name of that firm that you created?
3: MMI Intellectual Property, uh, and that is a solo practice uh, doing intellectual property work um, uh, right here in your EPA.
0: And right about now, and in, uh, in twenty, going on twenty twenty three, as of today, the date of this broadcast, the world has changed dramatically. Uh, and I'm I'm preaching to the choir, I'm sure. But relative to intellectual property, uh, you know, especially with these big television programs trying to tout people becoming entrepreneurs, et cetera, um, right. You're you'd be you are or you would be busier than ever relative to that field. I, I'm guessing.
3: Uh, you would think, um, but it, it's, it's a bit different. I mean, um, uh, one of the things that, um, I strive to do in my practice is, you know, basically help people as much as I can. A lot of people think they understand what they, uh, what intellectual property is and how it, 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 it can serve and help them. But a, a lot of them come with misapprehensions or misunderstandings that I usually have to redirect them. Um, And and part of the problem with people trying to be engineers and entrepreneurs and wanting to be entrepreneurs um, is a lack of access to funding. Uh, A lot of the stories that the myth mythology, I say mythology of entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. uh, is based on is things that happened in the 80s and 90s, you know, with people in their garages coming up with great ideas. Uh, and 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 a couple them. of
0: the largest corporations in Erie decades ago started oh, that yeah. way. Yeah, you know that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: of oh, the the, the is of the of the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh,
3: but 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 that, but that but even Eries are the ones that that happened in in the Erie area, were prior to the, the mega billion dollar companies like Apple and, mm-hmm. and uh, Google that came literally came out of people's uh, uh, garages, but. The difference between what happened in with in the Erie region and what happened in Silicon Valley uh, is is a, a very stark. Uh, it, but in every instance, what those entrepreneurs had that made them billionaires was access to capital. Mm. Um, you know, uh, uh, Apple uh, CEO um,
0: Steve Jobs.
3: Uh, yeah, Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, his um, yeah, yeah. He he, he was uh, the son of an immigrant. Yes, but his mother had a lot of money to hand and a him when he needed <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, same thing with uh, with uh, uh, with. Um, uh, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name now.
0: It's okay, but 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 out of the three or four, uh, even the Amazon family, etc.
3: Amazon, all of them. Yeah, all Elon them. Musk. He's Elon a Musk. son of a. Son of a gem uh, gem industry. <laughs> hey, uh, South you know,
0: Africa. That's where South he's Africa, from, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah.
3: Uh, all of those people that people look to started out with an advantage that 99.9% of us don't have.
0: Yeah. So uh, this so concept what that means of, for the rest of us yeah. is
3: is we have to work a lot harder to get even a tiny fraction of what what, what the dream has been sold to yeah, us. The
0: seed capital has come from someplace else in their past, in their family, where they asso- right. uh, with whom they've associated. Um, it, Correct. It, this concept, I, I don't want to name a television program, but I get a little nervous when I watch that because uh, yeah. it seems like it's not misleading. Uh, the advice is good, but that's not Correct. where the real big money, as you've described aptly, has come Correct. from. Right. That's
3: right. So, for for most people, what it is is developing an idea that just gets them to sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to get rich off of these ideas. You're going to get, if you put in the hard work, you find some way to str- struggle to get the money along. You could break even. Well, <laughs> uh,
0: uh, the famous Amos Cookies, I I discovered not long ago. I forgive me for not having the correct dates, but he he, he was he went bankrupt, right? Or he lost most of his money. Forgive me if. I shouldn't have said yeah. he went bankrupt, but literally had sure. had nothing. The last report that I had read.
3: Yeah, uh, and and that is you know most businesses who start up, they don't they don't succeed, uh, and you know within 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 a year half of businesses fail. Within five years half of those that succeed the first year fail. <laughs> uh, so and within ten years those are the ones to stick around. But all of that is a lot of very hard work. Uh, from conception to uh, development to possible market acceptance. I mean, you can't predict whether or not an idea will, will succeed. I mean, look at, for example, the uh, fidget spinners. You know, fidget spinners were
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: invented in in the 80s by this single mom, and she had a patent on it, and mm-hmm. she couldn't sell a single one of them until her patent expired and somebody else picked up the idea. and Yes. Like,
0: Speaking of a story similar to that from Pennsylvania itself, uh, the Slinky story. Yeah,
3: exactly. Uh, And
0: if people don't know how that went, it went to nothing. Uh, Right. He destroyed the company, so to speak, and his wife uh, rejuvenated it, uh, which was, I guess, one of the few patents that actually resurrected itself from nothingness, from bankruptcy. Uh, yeah. But let's go one step farther. Um, you, as a professional intellectual property lawyer, what what do you consider your responsibilities to someone who say, uh, first of all, let's let's interject one other fact here. Maybe they'll come to your office, but you also um, work at the university level. You're the new director of the Penn State Law, Penn State Law's Intellectual Property Clinic. Correct. And so, could you describe that, your responsibilities there, please?
3: Well, even before I I joined the faculty at Penn State Law, um, one of my goals or one of my uh, charges, I think, one of my obligations to my clients is to connect, to make them help them succeed.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: And uh, we are uniquely blessed in Pennsylvania and in the Erie region to have a supreme, a, a, a very rare number of economic development agencies uh, and groups and organizations that are around to actually help people develop ideas and take them to the marketplace mm-hmm. uh, between um, the small business development centers mm-hmm. uh, and the, the innovation beehive in in the Erie region so which is a collaboration between Penn State Baron uh, Gannon University Mercyhurst and uh, uh, Edinburgh
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and uh, And also, like, for example, Ben Franklin Technology Partners, and then the the new uh, development fund that's been been launched as well Mm -hmm. uh, by the Chamber and such. Um, A lot of people who come to me who who find me um, don't know about that network that exists Mm -hmm. uh, and don't know the resources that are available to them. So one of the things that I do is match people up with those resources. Um, So when uh, I saw that Penn State uh, had Penn State Law had this intellectual property clinic option open, uh, I thought that it would, it would be something like what I already do, which is, you know, connecting economic development to uh, uh, to Penn State resources. Uh, I did not know when I applied for the position that it was a faculty position.
0: Oh, okay, <laughs> so, okay. Uh,
3: I thought it was just, you know, continue to do what I always do. I thought <laughs> it was, you know, the, the Penn State has... A, 21 launch boxes uh, throughout the state. Part of Penn State's mission as a land-grant university is the uh, um, uh, economic development of the state. And Penn State has refocused its land-grant mission from agriculture to entrepreneurship. Beautiful. Uh, It's it's understanding that, you know, the people of of the Commonwealth now, how can we impact their lives in the most possible positive way? So the Penn State launch boxes are kind of like what the uh, Erie Technology Incubator is here. Uh, and the, the network of uh, economic development agencies here are sort of mirrored in Penn State throughout the state. Wonderful. Penn State actually sees the Erie region as sort of a model uh, of collaboration and innovation and development because of the way that the innovation uh, hubs and districts have been formed here. Uh, and I it was, or had a small part of play in some of this back in back in the day. So um, when 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 I got hired by by, by Penn State, uh, and I eventually realized that actually what they wanted me to do with the with, with the clinic was teach.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> um,
3: uh, it actually changed my focus of what I thought I was doing, going to be doing with what I am doing. So for purposes of explanation, the intellectual property clinic mm-hmm. is an experiential learning opportunity for law students at Penn State Law. Um,
0: okay. So mm-hmm.
3: it is basically the students take take the clinic for credit. Uh, and um, my charge is to run that clinic. So I basically run that clinic like my law firm. Um, uh, mm. I, uh, so uh, I I took the job at Penn State on the condition to keep my firm going. Uh, so they they run side by side. The students basically, uh, I treat them as associates uh, in my law firm, and basically we have clients who come to the clinic, and the students are in charge of, and responsible for client intake, arranging uh, 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 client meetings, and basically offering the entire suite of services that I would normally um, sir, uh, provide in my law firm. So it's. Patents, copyrights, trademarks, trade secrets.
0: So this is um, a reenactment, or I should say, role playing, so to speak.
3: Oh uh, uh, yeah, uh, I, role playing is the right word. But yeah, <laughs> uh,
0: <laughs> a little more complicated than that. A little more
3: complicated me. because yeah. you know they are you know lawyers in training, uh, and yeah. they have all the obligations of, of, of attorneys. And in in that, uh, you know, they have to maintain confidentiality. They have to they have to take uh, their responsibilities as baby lawyers.
0: Seriously. Yes.
3: And there are many core precedences about student attorneys uh, having the same or greater obligations uh, than regular attorneys. Of course, all of the work that they provide is for free. So um, we don't charge for their time to do it. And, and basically, I supervise it the work that
2: they
3: do. I don't do the work myself. I do some of the filings and the like. Mm -hmm. But essentially, it is student work uh, that gets done. So I I make sure that they live up to a a certain standard. But I don't do the work.
0: Now, Um, let me ask you something. Uh, I I didn't know this. I -hmm. just learned it recently. Your degree, your master's degree is in bioengineering from Cornell. And uh, I have a family member that's into biotechnology you seem to be sitting in the right place with the right degree in a real-world scenario in one of the biggest opportunities this country has. Am I close?
3: Um, yes and no. Okay, um, okay. So from, 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 from my perspective as a patent attorney, one of the things that um, uh, I see, that the, the only real reason for, that a patent attorney needs to specialize in a particular area is if they have a PhD in a particular area. Mm-hmm. Um, th- the fact of the matter is my clients who come to me, they don't, they aren't necessarily going to all come from one technology area.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So uh, I, I see my engineering degree is one of the advantages of a biotechnology or a biomedical or biological engineering degree
2: mm-hmm.
3: is that, Typically in engineering, you have to learn some amount of physics, mm-hmm. and m- most engineers will learn some chemistry, but mm-hmm. it's all based on an engineering principle. A bioengineer has to learn biology, physics, and chemistry, so I have a broader base of understanding than most other engineers,
0: Great. Uh, and because and I lawyers. have to learn biology. And lawyers. Well, <laughs> yeah, of course.
3: Well, lawyers in general, because you know you need a STEM degree to, to, to qualify to take the patent bar in the first place. You don't actually have to go to law school to be a patent agent.
0: Can we talk uh, for a second? I didn't mean to interrupt you, you just said sure. a magic word, patent. I think people have... Most people I've talked to do not understand how that works. I know we're going to regress back to some very simple things here. <laughs> yeah, uh, you you, know, you work with it every day. I, I've seen these things. I've read some medical right. patents because they're interesting. But what is a patent and what does it really entitle you to?
3: So a, a patent is a legal document that describes um, an invention.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, it,
3: it is. It's a lot more complicated than than just that. In, in essence, uh, the heart of a patent is what's called claims, where where you where uh, the, the the inventor identifies a list of inventions or at least one invention that is the subject matter of the patent, uh, and that's typically a bunch of sentences at the end of the patent. Mm. Then the patent itself, the document, supports that. Invention. So this, you spent a lot of time with figures and drawings and detailed description that describes how this invention operates, uh, w- what the limits of their invention are, how it can be used, variations, et cetera, et cetera. It may actually, the, the description may actually have multiple inventions in there, but the claims at the end identify one of those inventions. Hmm. Uh, and uh, you could have multiple patents with the same description, referring to different inventions in that description.
0: What I'm getting at is this is not as simple as what you see on television, i.e. the ads and the television programs. Uh, Correct.
3: The first advice, yeah, go ahead. There is a minimum requirement for what you have to put in. As long as you have that minimum, yeah, sure, you could get a patent. But you've heard that story, all all somebody has to do is change one minor thing and you get around the patent. Yes, that is true, if you have a badly written patent. Oh. (laughs) You can very easily get a patent uh, for something that's entirely worthless because you didn't spend the time and money to do it right. Yes. Um, So what a patent gives you is not a right to do or make anything. It gives you the right to stop others from making, using, or selling uh, an invention. Um, So it's a negative right. Um, So for example, I could file a patent application on, uh, um, on a slot machine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't give me the right to put a slot machine on, you know, in, in my church.
0: Right, uh, right. Yes.
3: It, it, it would stop others from um, co- copying my slot machine idea and, and using it anywhere in the country.
0: Now, let's elevate this to your everyday duties as assigned in your in your new career, so to speak uh you're providing education and technically you're providing advice to students are these students um entrepreneurs are are they in this class because they're thinking larger than just having a law degree in intellectual property
3: uh, generally they're all well they're all law students <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh yeah, not okay, all yeah, of them yeah uh because it's as a it's it's a part of the law school not all of them have have the qualifications to be patent materials okay uh we also do a lot of trademarks and copyrights which don't require stem degrees um so when to the extent that those students can do that work uh, we'll assign it to them uh but you know actually a little bit of of uh context for all of this. Who are our clients and where do we get them from? Right, The clinic is uh, housed in the uh, launch box located in Happy Valley, Pennsylvania, which is right outside State College, Pennsylvania. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So we're associated with the uh, with Penn State's main campus. Mm -hmm. because of modern technology being what it is, we actually support all 19 uh, uh, launch boxes across the state and we will take clients from anywhere across the state and anyone that is a Penn State grad uh, or has some connection that uh, that we can work on. The intention of the clinic is to help people who can't afford an attorney.
0: Oh, okay. so OK, uh,
3: yeah. it is not a substitute for someone who says, well, I don't want to pay an attorney, I'm just going to go here. Frankly,
0: well, you you, if you can measure afford an that. attorney yeah.
3: Yeah. If you can afford an attorney, you probably want to pay an attorney for this work. Okay. Because it's, you're not paying, you're, you're not getting, getting the benefit of my supervision of the students work, but it's still student work. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's an important distinction. I mean, I do have some of my clients, my own personal clients on MMI who I was sent here. And who have come here without even knowing that I'm running the clinic. (laughs) Um, That's okay. Yeah, that's totally fine. And then I I say, hey, it's me, Uh, I. And in in every instance, it's like, you know, I understand because um, if it is a a client that I know can afford my services, I will tell them that. And I will say, look, I understand that I am not doing the work they are. Uh, and I'm not put, putting aspersions on the on the students, but one, they are students, yes. which means that they're going to take a lot longer to do the same level of work that I would do. Uh, and they have schedule differences that I I don't I don't have. Ah. So, for example, right now we're in the middle of winter break.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. We're not open. <laughs> You're not open. Although you have Uh, a a telephone and internet, so I'm sure you're not vacationing.
3: (laughs) Oh, well, I mean, we're, I'm me, I'm open. Like my law firm is open, but the clinic is not open. I'm getting new applicants to our clinic all the time. And we just send them a response saying, we'll get back to you in the, in the spring. I mean, in in January when, uh, when the students come back, right. That's, you know, and over the summer, uh, with a little bit of a break, I will have students to help as well, but it's not a full class. Uh, so, you know there are limitations to that that said flip side of that is there are a lot of people who can't afford my services right and this is a great way for them to uh to get something um uh usually the uh, the thing is uh even in my normal practice i don't charge my initial consult for so you know my first hour of time is free Mm -hmm. Uh, when when people call into the clinic to become Clinic, uh, to become clients of the clinic, they have that same conversation with me through the students.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So they are getting a lot of help and advice that they wouldn't have otherwise. Uh, 80% of people who call me my regular practice don't ever call me back because I've addressed their concerns or issues within that first hour and at least pointed them to what they need to do for next steps when or when they are ready to come to me for a patent or a trademark or a copyright or what have you. Mm-hmm. In in the clinic, we have almost the same level of uh hits. Like 80% of the people they have questions we can answer really quickly within that first meeting. Uh the difference of course is that because they're not paying for the time of the students the, the, the mathematics of whether or not they can afford to move forward with a trademark registration or a patent application change.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So the things that I would say to somebody who come to me and say, well, here's what it would cost. If I were to do this, are you sure you can afford this? Or course they come to the clinic. It's well, here are the filing fees because yes. you're not paying for our attorney time. <laughs> this is all you have to pay for.
0: Yeah. Let's uh, take a step yeah. back to, uh, in the real world um i think people have a a funny maybe misconception that i have this idea i'm going to get a patent i'm going to run down to the local tool and die shop i'm going to make a million widgets or plastic components from my tool and die uh metal here that's not what really happens is it you you really need to show a need and um how do you do that uh, well, it... so
3: th- there's there's two problems. Mm-hmm. One is that the pa- there is a there is a time within which you have to file for a patent application. Mm-hmm. So you have one year from the date of first sale, offer for sale, mm. public use, or public disclosure of an invention within which to file a patent application.
0: So you're selling it before you patent it. No, no, no. No.
3: If you sell it, if you make a sale, if oh, you if you make
0: it, a sale, okay.
3: You have one year from that date to file a patent application in the
2: U.S.
0: Got it
3: but so you want to talk to a patent attorney before you make a disclosure before you make a sale or offer to sell because you could potentially lose your rights if you wait too long
0: if it's a good idea
3: well that's that's the other problem the other problem is you file a patent (laughs) application you're not even guaranteed to get a patent it's you know you still have to go through the process and that takes years like two to five years to get a patent at a minimum so you if you think you've got a good idea one you need to talk to to, to me or
0: or running. a lawyer yep mm.
3: or well a, a patent attorney patent you attorney.
0: Can talk to a patent attorney yeah
3: uh, or somebody knows what they're doing yes and figure out what what steps you have to take in order to be able to protect yourself and then you have to spend the time and money to figure out one if you can file a patent Two, file the patent And at the same time, develop the idea and make it marketable and sell it so you can pay for your patent attorney.
0: I've had uh, friends, clients, and relatives work in the chemical industry. And it seems that's somewhat advantageous because everything happens right in the office. Of course, you don't own the patent subsequently. Correct. Or in the laboratory. (laughs) You don't own it. So are most patents with that in mind um, generated by corporations, people who have huge companies with deep pockets? Is that how it did? Tip- well,
3: well, not always. Um, okay. So it depends. I mean, some, uh, yes, the, the IBMs and the Apples of the world, you know, they file patents like like nobody's business because that, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for other corporations, it's a matter of uh, strategic in, interest and intent, whether or not they have an R&D devo- developed department Uh, or whether or not the improvements that they stumble across are intentional or accidental. Um, This country used to have a lot more just, you know, R&D for the sake of R&D, you know, Uh, and we've gone away from that as much, Uh, you you know, um, I I think to our detriment, because there's uh, a lot of things that have developed serendipitously. um, uh, You know, for example, like Velcro.
2: Yes. All of those things that
3: you know, that just happened to stumble across, uh, you know, even, even my, even commercial microwave. Right. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh that was, that, that was a short during world war II. It's like, Oh, Hey, my, my, my chocolate bar in my pocket is is melting. Why is that? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yes, we do a lot of that. That's how a lot of things come, but we don't do it with intention as much anymore. Ah. Uh, so, you know, gone are the days where, uh, uh edison you know has edison labs where people are just paid to sit and think
2: yeah, uh, yeah there
3: are there are a few small shops that will do that but not nowhere near what it used to be um so and that's not to say that that we don't have the highest number of uh, still have the highest number of patent application filings of any other country but that's mainly because of america's market uh because mm. of what that what that means we have a lot we have an increasing number of patent application that comes from inventors who are overseas, which is again also not a problem per se. But if, if we don't in this country have an intention to to develop ideas and to foster that thinking, then you know that there's that we stand the risk of of, of losing that advantage that, that brought us to where we are.
0: In the last couple of minutes here, oh, this is gonna be a, a tough question. Where do you see all this going? It sounds like the patent process even what it takes to become properly educated, or in your case, what what you spend your time and energy on is teaching people how to do this in and, and your law firm, helping people do the correct thing legally. Where do you see all this going? Is it getting more complicated or will there be some kind of online process where you can go in and get this done, say in a couple of days?
3: Anyone who thinks they can do anything by themselves. <laughs> sorely mistaken excellent <laughs> nobody advice. does anything by themselves
0: excellent advice yeah the day of the one horse uh, thomas edison uh nikola tesla world oh, but, is but even, gone. even
3: edison edison didn't do anything by himself he No, he, had, he stole he stole his work from him, all the people he paid yeah but, i mean look at story. Yeah, tesla. new tesla jersey had he had hundreds of
0: people working on, on yeah. his estate there it was it was yeah, amazing
3: and, yeah uh, the, uh, sure he may have been a really smart individual but i would you know there are stories about him putting his name on ideas that weren't his
0: exactly and i've read just about every piece of literature on nikola tesla that's an interesting uh story right. as well and now as of today the story's so distorted that he's almost the name is like an icon rather than uh exactly a historical document uh what right. advice but- would you give to a new advent- inventor what what's the one thing that you see that you'd like to see them do first
3: I, I wish people would would be less afraid to talk to an attorney excellent excellent and also more willing to understand that they don't know everything a little bit of humility goes a long, long way <laughs> yes <laughs> uh on the other hand you still you you, you do need drive and um stick to it of this which sort of you have to ba- there's a fine line between um hubris
0: yes <laughs> an idiocy, <laughs>
3: an idiocy. Yeah. i i i don't know where that sweet spot is yeah. i i i i see many people with it with that sweet spot i mean karen Respecki with recap yeah. mason jars she has that
0: yes yeah what an outstanding uh,
3: her entire yeah. yeah her entire family they all have that hard work drive and you know a little bit of humility uh and ready to ask for help
0: well, with all this, Jonathan De Silva, thank you for taking this half hour and spending it with us here. And we're definitely going to ask you to come back on a more specific topic. So let me thank you for being a guest today on WQLN.
3: Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you.